Good evening, wherever you are, whenever you are. Welcome to the Knights of the Underground Table podcast. I am your host, John Garcia. Tonight, we have a special episode. We're going to talk about some very lighthearted things um, <laughs> in this very inspirational and touching movie, Tokyo Sonata, uh, 2008. Um before Fun I for get the whole into, family. Yeah, absolutely. Bring the whole family along. <laughs> Everybody's bound to have a good time. As always, Ryan King here at the table uh, in spirit uh, remotely. Yeah. Uh, how long is it until John realizes I'm not on the podcast anymore? Do you think he's starting to suspect? <laughs> <laughs> uh, and uh, also at the table, Michael Dixon. What's up? Uh, excited to talk about this very uplifting uh, fun movie. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. This was a Disney adaptation, I believe. <laughs> so uh, the movie that we're talking about tonight, um, as I had said earlier, is 2008's Tokyo Sonata, directed by Kyoshi Kurosawa. This is the movie that I picked. The synopsis of the story um, is basically a, uh, it's a family going through a crisis. Um, a father loses his job as a salaryman, and that kicks off a series of events of trying to save face. All these things that are, are high cultural pressures that lead to um, a family growing apart and, and breaking up in a way, and then sort of the ebb and flow of, of how that happens. I picked this movie because when I was attending college at UT Austin, Hookem, um, <clears throat> I was in a, a, a Japanese language class. They gave me the option of following up with another Japanese language class to complete my credit or doing a culture class. Uh, so I did a culture class. And the culture class was one of the most... Japanese is too hard. Like, it, it is a really hard language. <laughs> it seems <Yeah>. really hard. <laughs> it's very hard. Um, uh, one of the, one of the uh, things that I remember from that culture class is watching this movie uh, because it demonstrated a cultural... Uh, snapshot of Japan. Um, uh, definitely like way, way, way post-war Japan uh, that's been uh, highly kind of Americanized, capitalized, westernized, and has this um, kind of like powder keg of, of corporatism that's been pressurized into it. Uh, and the, the instructor showed us this movie um, and prefaced it before and also like bookended it after by saying, don't worry, this class will get better. Uh, and the wow. only way the class got better was, uh, we talked about anime on the last day, every other day, everybody wondered how dark things would get. And so, <laughs> um, I never stopped thinking about this movie because of kind of how it was shown to me and the cultural context that I got. Um, I'm still very limited in my knowledge of a lot of Japanese culture. It's all that what I've got at a distance and sort of the films that I've experienced with it. But this one stuck with me and I hadn't seen it since and I've never seen it released on a Blu-ray uh, in the States. Um, I have a DVD of it and I don't remember when I got it. Uh, and so I was like, oh, I'm, I'm going to pick that. One of the reasons that I, I really enjoy and, and appreciate it is because it is um, making a serious commentary on those cultural pressures in Japan. It is meditating on what do we need to focus on when we have a family, when we have a job, like what are things that, that weave in and out of what keeps you in your spot in life and what makes you want more uh, and, and what does it cost kind of if you're trying to keep up appearances and not just with like people outside of your family, but even within your family, um, what does that mean for you and what does that do to you and the people you know and love? 
Um, it's got a lot of like traumatic moments in it too that all stuck out to me. Uh, yeah. I remember yeah. those the most after seeing it because it's just like horrifying to see some of what happens. Uh, there are other moments where it, it kind of lends itself into um, melodrama in a way, but in a way that I didn't find like obnoxious or like, oh God, okay, fine, we get it kind of thing. It, it always, I always felt like it took itself um, very serious to the degree that it needed to. And at times it could be lighthearted and funny in, in how like dark it got. So uh, I was interested to see what y'all would think about it. So yeah, I'll kick things over to Ryan. Yeah, um, definitely a movie that's kind of showing Japan between two eras, between two generations, and kind of the shift that's that's happening. Uh, definitely this tail end of the 80s corporate boom of Japan and the yeah the, the pressure that it puts on the salary man and, and his family. Um, yeah, it starts off lighthearted. I knew nothing about this. So at the beginning, I was like, oh, this is making fun of the concrete jungle of Tokyo until it suddenly is not. Uh, and then it just kind of crescendos more and more. Yeah. Into not, yeah. Horrifying in a way, in the way that they're so grounded, what you see. Um, I was really interesting how it kind of reused earlier moments, earlier scenes that took on new, like uh, you looking at them now in a completely different context um, and a lot of really interesting shots that I felt were seem unnatural, like you kind of felt voyeuristic or they were just shot through like a f from the kitchen through all the plates or like through the stairs or like down the stairwell. Lots of really weird shots. Um, so I think it'd be interesting to talk about those. Um, and maybe it ends on an uplifting note. So yeah, I think that's, it, I enjoyed it. It was definitely interesting having absolutely no context, trying to kind of figure out where it was going and what, what was happening. Um, but yeah, a really good like family melodrama as this family kind of each person falls apart. Um, yeah. En enjoyed it. Dixon. Yeah. I, I thought this was pretty fascinating. I'm, I'm interested to hear more, um, from both of your perspective, especially yours, John on, on the Japanese culture aspects of kind of what was going on around this film. The things that I noticed were very much a reflection of what was happening in America at the time. I mean, this came out in 2008 during the global financial crisis that America started that I am sure was affecting Japan at the time. It affected, you know, countries all over the world. The movie premiered uh, in May 20, 2008 at Cannes. So I don't know, like, by the time this was written and, like, shot, if the financial crash had actually happened yet, like, if, you know really full bore happens like it had probably started to happen but this may have been more about just kind of a separate economic uh climate in japan at the time that may or may not have had to do with uh you know the housing crisis and and the global financial crisis um but i it, it very much feels of the time of 2008 with um you know the the depression that's happening in japan as well as a lot of discussion around american imperialism and and military forces going around the globe and how those impact other countries that aren't necessarily directly involved that i found really interesting um the the movie is it has a very interesting tone it's like very austere in its uh kind of style it, it's you know very removed um it it's emotional in kind of its lack of forward emotion aside from in a few scenes where 
the characters are kind of trying to hide the stress that they're going through and and trying to not uh you know make it clear to those around them that they're suffering and and going through these hard times and it seems very much about these characters trying to keep up appearances to even the people closest to them and not being able to be intimate with their closest family members and to actually share what they're going through and dealing with like they can't really interact as a team they can't help each other out because they're also prideful and they can't kind of talk about what's going on particularly the father um you know being the the obvious uh you know kind of uh person who's creating a lot of these problems but um yeah i i, I found this movie really interesting and um you know excited to to talk more about it yeah. All right. Um, we'll jump right in. I, I don't have a, I don't, I'm not even going to try to do a timeline of this. I have beats from the movie that I know uh, happen per character since it's got so many kind of threads weaving around it. It's just going to be a situation just like Akira where we're like, <laughs> when did, and then the character did this before the other thing, I think maybe. Um, but it is important to talk about the character names just so that we have a, a base level. So uh, the I'm characters, have trouble with these. the characters themselves, um, Ryuhei, uh, the dad, uh, and then Kurosu, the friend to the dad. Um, Megumi is the mom. Uh, Takashi is the oldest son, and Kinji is the youngest son. Those are the main characters we need to know. The piano teacher can be the piano teacher. Sorry, piano teacher. Um, <laughs> that <laughs> you is have a the only context name. in which we know her is that yes. she teaches piano, so I think that's fine. Exactly. Would we hear her name when she's getting divorced? Come on. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> come on. <laughs> come on. <laughs> um, but those are the core characters that we have. And so the movie really kicks off with... Uh, Ryuhi succeeding at his administrative work, which is in front of a giant bunch of boxes of just files and folders and facts and figures. Mm -hmm. Um, and he's pulled into like a room. We kind of get a, a primer sequence where somebody walks in, uh, it's like a sales pitch to his executive boss or, uh, and this woman is like speaking to him in perfect Japanese and uh, then they're like, yeah, she's from China. So we can outsource like all of these administrative jobs to China for cheap. They know how to do this. They speak really well. Like we can do all of this and it'll save you this much money. Yeah, we can and get three Chinese workers for the price of one Japanese worker. Yeah. And so the boss is like, all right, we're going to do it. Uh, and calls uh, Ryuhi into his room and it's just like, what do you think about the future? Like, what do you, what do you, what's your, what's lined up next for you? Um, and it's, it's already have you ever thought about not being here anymore. Cause we have, we've thought about that. Um, th this is a, a, a moment of kind of like a cultural difference. Um, and not really, I would say like in America, there's two, there's also in the U S there's also a thing where like, you're trying gently to approach the, the precipice of something that you're going to say. Um, and you're like, putting a little bit of soft batting around it. Um, in this case, like most of Japanese culture is, uh, from, from what I've learned, there is a certain dance that you must do when you're talking with people. Um, that's why like American and Japanese business relationships have cultural and communicative issues is, uh, I'm, I'm, like I've heard so many stories of businesses going to Japan and trying to forge a deal with a Japanese business and everybody in the boardroom is saying yes, to like everything that they're saying. And then the moment that they leave, it was actually all just politeness and none of it was intended. And then they get ghosted by the company or there is a, mm. a, a, a kind of softly worded rejection letter that's given to it. And so there's this aspect of like, we're being polite, we're entertaining you. 
um, and we're allowing you to give this pitch to us, but we won't say no to you to your face. We'll let you figure it out for yourself. Um, even that sounds much worse from the, <laughs> even from the language, uh, itself. Um, one of the things that I learned in my Japanese language course, there's going to be like whatever pops into my brain I'll share. Uh, there's a certain amount of face that you save when you're trying to reject somebody. So if somebody asks, if you want to go to the movies next week, uh, you don't say no, you say, uh, sumimasen ga choto, which means sumimasen is excuse me. Um, and choto is a moment it says like, and you're just supposed to let that hang and the person just gets it. And then they're like, Oh, okay. That's okay. That's fine. Oh, totally. Wow. Okay. So, it's so a there's passive a aggressive shit. There's a, a, a bit of, a bit of that where you're supposed to sense it. And so it's just like a cultural difference that you, you really uh, yeah, have to yeah. have to get it. But so this movie has a lot of that peppering it. You see it in the way that the characters interact with each other. It's part of what conceals a lot of the emotion away um, from, and the honesty and so uh, in this whole moment that the dad is just, Ryu is just like, okay, I, yeah, I haven't really thought about the future, but all right, if you're going to let me go, you're going to let me go. Um, and, and he just kind of goes back. He's His boss even asks him like, what value do you think you could have here? Like, we'll, we'll transfer you somewhere else if you can actually provide value to the company in a different capacity, which is like just a... a such a big like i don't know it's just like a horrible way to handle that from the company's perspective right, yeah. like if you want to if you want to transfer that guy somewhere else like maybe the boss be like hey like i think you have talents that could be good in this department or hey we just don't think you're going to be a fit in another role and we should just let you go but like there seems to be this concept in in that conversation and some of the interviews he has where they're like well like justify your existence you know like yeah. what are what what can you do to provide value here and he's like well, i don't know i've been here forever i've done the same thing like that's what i know and um you know it, it's not really a fair way to kind of handle uh, the situation in my opinion he's a people yeah. person um, what do you people not get about this yeah, <laughs> <laughs> yeah exactly <laughs> But yeah, so like from there, we get the, like he goes and packs his things up. He's just kind of given up. Uh, even his coworker is trying to like ask him up to like the last minute, like, what do you think about these reports? Are we going to have enough for like this one thing? He's like, I don't know, are you going to use that bag, like that shopping bag? And the coworker's yeah. like, no. And he just starts like loading it with like Like an oversized gift bag that yeah. you put like a baby shower present in or something. Yeah. Um, and he, he just starts to, he just heads home early, basically. He's like, all right, fuck it. I'm going to go. Um, I, I do. I'm very curious as to what his job is at, at this company. Like, I don't know if there's maybe just a translation issue, but like the subtitles say that he is the director of administration. And I'm like, what, is, what the hell does that mean? Like, what, what does he do? Yeah. And like, okay, I guess that seems like some kind of, you know, unimportant task that would be outsourced. But um, I was very curious as to like what he does. And then like in future like interviews and talking to unemployment officers, he's like, well, I do administration. And they're like, what? <laughs> yeah, I think it was supposed to be ambiguous, just sort of like a, a position that can yeah. easily be gotten I'm a businessman. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. It's, it's somebody who has worked for so long, they don't really remember what they do, but they have a lot of things that they kind of are organizing. Like uh -huh. they just spin plates. It's just different plates each yeah, time yeah. kind of thing. Um, yeah, and uh, he, he goes home early. He actually runs into his son, Kenji, his youngest, uh, on the road back to home. And they, they walk in silence. He's like kind of, they're both surprised to see each other. 
Uh, That's such a sad moment because, yeah. like, he he even like walks ahead of his son. Like, he refuses to engage in conversation. That kind of sets the tone for the way this family seems to operate. Like, they don't really talk to each other. They all kind of do their own thing. They expect respect from each other, but they like are not. Uh, they don't know each other. You know, re really is what it seems like. Yeah, we get so yeah, many scenes and, and of them just being people in a room. Right. Like they're not yeah, really yeah. interacting. They mm -hmm. don't seem like a family. They're just people together in a room. Yeah. Um, and we get this kind of amidst this initial part of a crisis, we get a comical scene where uh, Ryuhi tries to, he like waits, I think, before his Kenji goes in and he like holds back and he's like, I got to wait until I go in to make it look like we didn't come home together. Um, and, and he like sneaks in the back door to try to not raise suspicions from his wife on why he's home early. Yeah. yeah. Um, but his wife Megumi catches him immediately <laughs> and he's just holding his shoes and was like, I'm just checking these doors to make sure that they're like these windows to make sure that they're locked and they're not. Uh, so we, we need to, to lock them because the neighborhood needs to be safe. Kind of like, it's just like this bullshit reason. Yeah. <laughs> um, it's a, again, another, like I'm saving face. I'm not going to try to admit why I was caught this way. Um, we get a few scenes of uh, kind of establishing them as a family. Uh, I believe like the older brother Takashi is, is out and about doing like odd jobs at this point. Um, he's not really one of the prominent figures. The more main are Ryuhi, Megumi and Kenji. Um, Takashi is there as, uh, occasionally to, to step in and out and kind of bounce off of them. Um, plus he's got his own life. He's like an adult at this point. He does mm -hmm. kind of what he wants to do. Uh, and so seems like he's probably like 19 or 20 uneducated, still living at home, like not really sure what he wants to do himself. Enough I think that he's, he's under a age. little bit under that. Yeah. Yeah. He's he under age because he has to have him sign a waiver. Oh, right. For, for yeah, the yeah. Yeah. Um, but yeah, uh, at this point we see a dinner with them. That's where we're getting these shots, um, which I, I want to make a real quick note that, uh, uh, Kiyoshi Kurosawa is a horror director. Typically he's directed oh, horror films and he wanted to do something a bit more serious and grounded. And I think that the horror aspect really comes through in these really calm voyeuristic shots. Like, that you're watching behind things. There's always something mm -hmm. layered in the front to give depth to it um, instead of just like, oh, it's a stage or something. And I think it makes so much out of the small space uh, that they have to work with that that seems to be their home. I mean, like, I think that's a, obviously it's kind of a stage that's built because occasionally you'll see like the way that the lighting is done for like the train going by. Yeah, where it's, they're like literally right on the train tracks. The yeah. train will come by and just light up their living room like crazy. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, just those things, but they're, they're so well done. Uh, and um, yeah, like that stood out to me this time around watching it. I was like, Oh, this has so many voyeuristic shots where yeah. Watching from the banister, watching from behind dishes, like all these other things that you're just observing this family. And yet it's somehow in this intimate space, not like outside a window. It's almost like it's pressed up at, or you are the window in a way. Mm -hmm. Um, but yeah, uh, we, we get a, a dinner scene with them. Um, if I remember correctly. And then basically like what happens after this is, uh, there's a split where like Kenji's having trouble at school. Um, it's not even his fault necessarily. Uh, it's, some kids are handing around a big old manga book, I think. Um, and he happens to be the one that's caught holding it. The teacher decides to make an example of him. 
And this is one of those things where like the teacher's kind of going through the motions of like, now I must shame you. You have to like, you stand at the back of the class. How dare you do this in my class? And, um, Kenji decides that that's not fair. That's like a generational thing where he's like, we shouldn't have to do this. This seems like bullshit, especially if I know that you fucked up teacher. If I know that you were looking at hentai on the train or whatever, um, yeah, like I saw you reading porn on, on the yeah, public train. <laughs> he just like outs the teacher in front of the class, causing like mass chaos and anarchy. The class uh, is like 12, 13 year olds, like definitely the age where that's the, the thing to say that will just disrupt the class for the rest of eternity. Like there's no getting there's the attention of that class back for the rest of the school year. It's just gone. Yeah. Um, and there's the whole moment of like, uh, it's like, do you want battle Royale? This is how you get battle Royale kids. Um, <laughs> they just like go full on, like writing his name. They give him some like nickname, some diminutive thing yeah. that just like, completely Ar- humiliates sensei, which is like erotic. Like Arabashi sensei. Ar- yeah, yeah. Which is like erotic. erotic teacher. Like, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, and they all chanted in unison. It's really fucked up. Uh, <laughs> Kenji did not want any of that to happen. He just wanted to make a point that like, it's not fair that you can shame me when you have equal shame. Like we should be able to communicate and have like this kind of level understanding. Mm -hmm. Kenji is um, kind of the heart and soul of this. He's got that innocence to him, but also a precociousness. He's very aware of what's going on around him, but um, he, he still wants to like break through any kind of, of cultural pressures um, for, for what's going on in his life and what he wants to do, which uh, is he's, getting curious about playing piano. Um, I should also talk a bit about, I think Megumi was, was asking about something financially related at the dinner, like right before they have their, their meal. Um, and they're talking, there's just more like business pressure being built on Ryuhei. She wants to fix the stove and like uh, some other stuff around the house. And, and he, he gives her the paycheck for the month that kind of buys him time to be able to keep faking things. Yeah. And he has like severance for a little bit too. Mm -hmm. Um, but she's like, Oh, maybe when the bonus comes in as well, like that'll help. And there's just that added, like, Oh man, you mentioned the bonus. That's not going to happen. Uh, so there's definitely like a ticking time bomb of when is this going to be? How would you even pull off a bonus (laughs) at this point? Um, so were you here at the same time that Kenji is, is, finding himself in school, trying to like uh, figure out what's going on. He's, he's developing this passion for maybe he wants to do piano. Maybe he doesn't. Ryu is trying to um, fake that he still has a job right now uh, by going and hanging out um, at this like open public area where they offer free food um, for, for folks that are down on their luck, I assume, uh, an assistance program. Um, and he's just kind of like collecting himself, trying to figure out what the strategy is. How does he get his next job? Every day puts on a suit and tie, leaves the house (laughs) to go waste time around the city or go stand in an absurdly long line at the unemployment office only to be mocked by the person who finally talks with him and then goes home and acts like everything is totally fine. Like seems deeply depressed, but he kind of I mean, we don't really get to see him before the news that he's lost his job. So it's hard to tell if his behavior has really changed, but the rest of the family doesn't seem surprised by, by how he's, he's kind of acting around them. Yeah. Yeah. Well, this part almost plays like comedy because his friend, I guess that he meets through all this has all these tactics to get like old high school buddy. Yeah. And then he also is out of a job and has all these tactics to fake not letting your family know that you lost your job. And in this park, <laughs> we see a mix of 
homeless, clearly like homeless people and a lot of businessmen. And then in the line, yeah. we see like homeless people and a lot of businessmen like waiting to get jobs. Um, it's also yeah. constantly trains in the background. Like that was another thing. You feel sort of like this oppression of it being all these buildings and these trains all going by like this city that's just concrete. Yeah. It's just a machine is what it sounds like. There's just yeah. machinations everywhere um, that are, that are running. Uh, and yeah, we get the, uh, through this kind of lens of him hanging out in these, the, at this assistant park kind of area, getting this food, he runs into his high school buddy, uh, Kurosu and Kurosu, like when he first runs into him, he's also wearing a suit. He's got a briefcase. Oh man, this guy really looks like he has it together. He walks right by that park <laughs> and then they, they lock eyes and then he keeps walking. But then he, oh, he realizes who knows if he actually really does or if he's like, oh crap, I realized it could have been days before that he realized my friend is there. <laughs> I need to walk by one day if I want to get food and like act like I am just interested in this food. I actually think it was the the opposite. Like it wasn't like I need to connect with my friend. It was like I need to make sure to put forth the appearance that I have a job. Oh no, that's what I'm. Friend. That's what I mean. It's like yeah, yeah. he might have been walking away one day and saw Ryuhi and was like, "Oh shit! Next time I come, if he's here, I need to act like I have somewhere I'm going." Yeah, and yeah then yeah. I'll turn around and be like, "Oh, you? Hey, what's going on? What do they serve food here? <laughs> I'm just gonna get one of these real quick. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> like, just get in line." <laughs> that scene was pretty funny. He's like, "Wait, you would eat the f- free food?" And he's like, "Oh, just just want to try and see how it tastes." Yeah, yeah like, and then we get like a, a cut to um, basically like it's a weird like handshake that happens where neither of them really admits it. But once they're eating the food, they've like bonded over that and they're closer enough to talk about it. And they're also away from everybody else. And Ryu is like, so you got laid off too, huh? And mm-hmm. uh, Kuros is like, oh, you could tell. Um, before that, we got that beautiful scene. Yes, uh, where uh, Kurosu, um takes a call on his phone. I don't know. Ryan, no. I, Ryan I, still I'm there? still here. Okay, no, good. Just ignore <laughs> me. You're all good. My video um, died. You're all good. I'll pick back up. Uh, yeah. So Kurosu's on his phone. It like beeps and he's like, yes, yes. I think we can close that account for $1 million, Mr. <laughs> President. Uh, and um, it sounds like the most impressive deal being landed in this uh, assisted food park uh, area. <laughs> and, um and Ryu is just in awe. He's like, wow, you're so impressive for having this job and doing this, being successful about it. And then later when they're eating the food, he's like, wow, you're so impressive for knowing how to save face and keep up with this appearance yeah. for so long. And he's like, stick with me. I'll teach you all the tricks that you need to know. He's like, there's a setting on your phone. Not many people know about it, but you can set it to just ring every five minutes. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> It's, it's, and so he just every time, every five minutes, he acts like he has a very important business call and just says buzzwords on the phone. And like it's, it's kind of it's very sad, but it's kind of hilarious at the same time. Yeah. Um, and that's where like this movie has such a nice tonal balance. It can dip in and out of these moments and mm-hmm. it, it can expose what's comedic about it while also treating it with respect and uh really trying to explore that space in it. And um, Kurosu takes Ryuhi to see, uh, to the library and they're sitting reading magazines and Kurosu leans over and this, there's just all these people around him. And he's like, you can stay here all day and nobody can make you leave. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's like, he's like, a, he's like a kid bragging about something. And it's, it, yeah, it's funny. It's kind of 
cute in a way initially, also just sad. And I'm just like, oh man, this, um, this situation is pretty dire as it builds. I think that like, if these particular scenes weren't played as kind of comedic by the characters, um, this movie would be really oppressive. Just yeah. the entire thing would be really bleak. Um, For the most part, it is pretty bleak and pretty melancholy throughout. But yeah, it has these little moments that are that are nice that kind of um, alleviate that, but also reinforce it, uh, which is is pretty interesting use of of those lighter moments. It's uh, it's almost like it's like swimming with like really low stamina. You feel like you go under the water for a really long time and then you make your way back up occasionally and get like one breath. Uh, and those those are the kind of like moments um, that this needs to like alleviate some of that pressure. And you get like sweet sentimental moments that buy you that time, too. Mm-hmm. Um, but then they're always kind of immediately cut off by something else that's harsh or just like, oh, God, this is happening now, too. Um yeah, the the score is something else that's really fascinating to me. The sound, mm-hmm. it's this, it sounds haunting, like from a different decade kind of haunting in a way to me. And I can't tell what it is. It's like lo-fi um, flute playing is what it kind of sounds yeah, like. Yeah, some of it sounds like key, like electronic keyboard kind of. Uh, yeah, there's interesting, interesting aspects to it. It also doesn't come in until way later in the movie. It opens like it opens the movie with it, but then it comes in later. The next time you hear it is after. I think it's like after he has dinner with his friend, like after it. Yeah, like much like farther in sort of where it takes what I feel like is the very dark turn where it mm. lets you know, like, nope, this is not lighthearted. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. It, it, I feel like that that music comes in typically in the night or when you're in the most isolated scenes, like the, yeah, the yeah. ones where you're just alone. Um, and it, it just underscores that moment. Cause otherwise you would have, you'd have like pure silence, which would I'm sure would be fine, but there's something that adds an extra amount of like haunting, uh, atmosphere to it. Um, so we've got Kenji and Ryuhi that are experiencing their two ish, their two different problems. Uh, Ryuhi's over on an adventure with Kurosu to figure out how can I keep up the appearance of being a salary man without my, my wife knowing, um, what are some of the resources I can use while I'm looking for the perfect job for me, the perfect administrative job. Cause I don't want to clean at a mall and I don't want to work at a burger stand. I I'm, I'm above those things. Um, he, he won't even compromise to get like some sort of income to supplement, uh, and, um, and the, the guy at the unemployment office is like, there is a 100% chance that you will not be able to replicate your previous job. Yeah. It's like, wow, yeah. that's pretty harsh. A hundred percent chance like that. You're, you're basically going to have to s- accept a decrease in class status and take a menial job because that's literally all there is. And it, it's, it's one of those things where like also Kenji dealing with his, his disciplinary action from uh, the teacher combined with he's curious about piano. There's just like a restrictiveness on him as a child where like his mom and dad don't, I mean, his mom is very sweet. Megumi's sweet to Kenji wants to support him. Um, but it's, it's Ryuhi who the more that he feels he's losing in ground of authority, uh, the tighter he grabs onto Kenji and tries to instill in him. I think at one point he admits like, you know, Takashi's a lost cause, um, yeah. I yeah. have to drill every, I have to force everything down Kenji's throat. Like I have to force all of who I am and make him me like he has and, to. And even me. if he like thinks he said something incorrectly or 
was being unreasonable. He refuses to go back on anything because like the worst thing in the world to him is that his authority and reputation could decrease in, in any aspect of his life, but like, especially within his own family, he's so protective of that. Yeah. Yeah. There's definitely this theme of authority, like getting, I guess, replaced or, or undermined, right. Where Takashi is like pushing back on his dad, eventually just goes out on his own. And then same thing, Kenji's like sneaking around himself to get these piano lessons. And every time Ryu, he feels Yeah, he like that, finds yeah. a keyboard on the side of the road, like in the garbage and takes it home and practices on that in secret. Like won't, you know, right. can't tell his parents about it because his dad said he couldn't take piano lessons once. And then like that's the end of the discussion. Even if it's something he's super passionate about, you can't have that conversation again because it makes me look weak, you know? And, yeah, and I yeah. think Ryu, hey, like, he resents the authority above him, but he doesn't know how to do it. Like his kids are just like, screw it, right? Like, <laughs> I'm just gonna sneak around behind yeah. dad's back and do what I want. And Ryuhei's like, oh, well, mm -hmm. I have to respect that I'm supposed to get this kind of job. And if they don't give it to me, I, I don't know what to do. Like they fired me, but I'm supposed to respect that. And he wants to have this respectful position. And it is until later where I think he just sort of gives in to like, I have to be different. Things have to be different. I have to you who I am, right? That later, but is that like authority fight that's constantly through this? Yeah, that moment when he returns to the unemployment office when he's finally decided, okay, fine, I'll take whatever I'll job you have <laughs> is just so disheartening. When like the guy's like, well, there's a janitorial job at the mall. What hours do you want to work? He's like, I don't, I don't care. Just give me, give yeah. me whatever. Okay. And it's it's just you can tell it's just a huge blow to his ego that that he has to do that basically admit to himself and the rest of the world that that's the person that he is now having to take a menial job but still refusing to admit that to his family and still trying to maintain appearances yeah yeah he and, puts his suit um, back on at the end of that one day and then the other guy that's working there comes out and does the same thing like they're still trying mm -hmm. to pretend they have a better job yeah, wears his suit to his janitorial job and then changes back into it when he leaves. Yeah. By the way, their locker room is like just a hallway that's <laughs> yeah. open to the main part of the mall. Like they're just changing out in, in public. Uh, yeah. Okay, all right. That's Every, right. Yeah. Maybe Japanese culture is a little bit different, but it seems a bit weird. <laughs> yeah, that was pretty funny. <laughs> yeah, they. Uh, um, yeah, and like we get those moments too uh, where even before like Ryuhei accepts that we see the alternate, the thing that really jarred him and made him do that is what happens to Kurosu, which Kurosu um, is further along in his facade mm -hmm. and is like, look, I think that my wife suspects something is happening instead of trying to broach the subject gently. Even uh, he decides I want to have you over for dinner, Ryuhei. I want you to talk up that I'm doing great at work, that you got you have a job with me. We still work together. Uh -huh. uh, and it, it, to the moment where like Kurosu's like berating him over dinner of like, you should have checked those That's accounts. That's so funny. He gets a fake phone call and steps away from the dinner and comes back and he's like, that was the boss. He says, you really need to step up. Like you're really not pulling your weight around here. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's just, it's it's such a like, oh man, it's yeah, it's, it's so tragic. And at the same time comedic and how it happens because you know exactly, if you were in that moment with no context, you'd be like, wow, 
uh, th- that's a weird exchange to have. Like I'll have to parse that together, but having been with Kurosu, like all of the way learning about his phone trick where he goes during the day along with like the, through the lens of Ryuhei, it's like, Oh, okay. Um, you're, you're really committed to this lie. Like you're so committed. You won't tell your daughter or your wife. Um, and then, right, uh, right after his, that, the wife Kurosu, even, like just, breaks down. Like it's really subtle that he, it, like right after he finishes saying that and chewing it out, they're having another like silent family moment and Kurosu just kind of like falls apart. You can see his hands like droop and his head droop, like this real slow, like giving in to the fact that he's just completely all in on this bullshit. And it's really uncomfortable for Ryuhei the whole time. Like the wife starts asking, Hey, the company's good, right? The company's still a good position, right? And he has to lie to her. And they just hit that also. Yeah, you can him. tell the wife has suspicions, and yeah, so he's 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 trying to cover up, and like it seems like uh, I, I'm sorry, I'm probably going to Kusoku, Kurosu, is uh, like that's kind of it seems like that's the moment where he kind of gives up, you yeah. know, and realizes fuck, I can't do this anymore. Which leads to a scene very shortly thereafter where Ryuhei goes to his home and, and tries to find him and learns that uh, he has committed murder-suicide and killed his wife and, and himself. And just at the end of his rope of, of despair and, and couldn't, couldn't keep up the, the facade anymore. Yeah, and it, yeah. it's it's on Ryuhei from there to do that. Oh, sorry, Ryan. Rikas. I was going to say, Ryuhei comes home from that and Megumi is kind of like you see her sometimes just in the house like she doesn't have anything to do she's supposed to live this like pretense of being the housewife and keeping things together um and Ryuhei comes home from the dinner with Caruso and Caruso yeah we're gonna get every name wrong Caruso he comes home from the dinner and just goes back into his room and Megumi is laying on the couch like taking a nap I guess and kind of wakes up and she puts her hands up and is like, hey, help me up. He just walks by her. He's not paying attention and goes back. And then she just lifts her hands like further up and says, someone help me up. Like anyone help me up. That was so like yeah. gut punch. Yeah. Mag- yeah. Megumi's story is so tragic. Like she's just trying to serve the family and kind of keep everybody together without like clearly she's doing that within the confines of like a traditional patriarchal type of family and she clearly feels that she can't really speak out the way that she wants to and try to kind of inspire the change in the family that she wants to see but she's so supportive of everyone and really kind of trying to keep everybody together and just failing to do so because no one is interested in in doing that and when Ryuhei comes home from from that dinner and she's like oh I I you know I waited to cook till you came back like I'll I'll cook dinner for you now and she's like I haven't eaten yet and then he's like no I already ate I'm going to bed and she's like okay I'll come to bed to help me up and then yeah and he leaves it's like she is he has clearly not communicated to her at all what was going on. He was not going to be there for dinner. She was just there waiting for him. And then he's like, yeah, I'm not hungry. And she's like, all right, I'll just go to bed too, I guess. Like just a, a, a really sad moment. A really kind of really emblematic of the dynamic in that marriage. Yeah. I felt like having um, this scene at the dinner, like the awkward dinner and then Megumi, like not getting helped up. And at the next scene is Ryuhei trying to find out what happened it's just like punch, punch, but that was the point where I was like, oh, this movie's 
like we're done with the lighthearted anything like we're going hard in from here on out yeah, <laughs> yeah you're, you're about to get emotionally tko'd it's just gonna knock you out <laughs> um yeah like and right after that is you know Ryuhei accepts like I need to do something. I need to take any job, anything that I can do. I don't care anymore. I don't want to murder suicide my family. Um, it's it's not in the cards for me because he also makes eye contact with the daughter, Kurosu's daughter. Like they just meet. Mm-hmm. She's coming in, and you can just tell. You can see like all of the sadness in her eyes. And he's like, "I'm not going to do that to my kids." Um, but he still wants that authority, and he's still like, "I I need." There's a breaking point that he's going to reach. Um, pretty soon. And part of it is kind of triggered by another event where we, uh, Kenji this whole time has been doing piano lessons using his lunch money behind uh, his parents' back because he was told no. It's like teacher calls in Megumi and is like, hey, your son's three months behind on lunch money and owes us. And also he broke down the classroom by making fun of me. Yeah. And he's yeah. like, yeah. She's like, is he, why is he not paying? Is he bullied? And he's like, no, it's the other way around. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. He, he's, he's bullying bully. me. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So then when she comes home, she, <laughs> Megumi, like, busts into the room and he has the piano and he, like, lays on top of it. It's like, don't it's come like to my she room. Caught don't him look, jerking don't off. Look. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Um, and she's like, why are you hiding this from me? Like, why would you do, she's really mad initially. And then when she realizes what it is, like she empathizes with her son. I'm sure that there's something that she, obviously she feels stifled too. And she's like, oh, you should just told me, but like, you know, the situation that was created had this whole air where he was like, well, I can't, I don't feel like your mom and dad. I don't know if I can confide in both of you, one of you, what's going to happen with it. And so at this point we get like Megumi's on Kenji's side wants to help him is trying to figure out how to plan telling, uh, Ryuhi about it. And it's, it's setting up more drama to happen soon. Um, but it's a sweet moment between her and Kenji where we're affirmed that like, she's not detached from this family. She wants to be a part of this family. She does so much for the family because she loves everybody in the family. Like Takashi coming home and saying like, I want to enlist in the U S military because Japan has a defense force. He doesn't really want to think that it's like, there's some extension about that. And he's like, I'm going to go fight, you know, uh, for, for the U S if they're an economic ally, they must be a good ally that we need to support, which is another line where I was like, Oh man, that just kind of hits me uh, in a really bad way. Um, In 2008, we were so desperate to continue barraging Afghanistan and Iraq that we were just recruiting anyone from around the globe. Just join the U.S. Army. Just come and come and uh, fight brown people with us. Yeah, and and Megumi has a nightmare about that too, as she sees Takashi off to to uh, to the military. she has a nightmare that he comes back and that he's completely traumatized broken. by the experience that he's killed so many people and he's broken and like, she just doesn't know what to do about it. Uh, and that's when she like wakes up and is like, Oh my God. Um, when, when she actually takes him to the train station for him to go join the, the army is just such a sad scene. Like it, it feels like kind of the, the death of that family is kind of this oldest son, leaving and joining the U S military. And they're having this sad moment, kind of sitting a few seats from each other 
on the bench at the train station and he turns to her and goes, mom, why don't you just divorce him? Like, yeah. what are you doing staying with this guy? And she's kind of taken aback by it, but you can tell that she understands where the question is coming from. And, uh, you know, she kind of tries to defend her reasons for sticking around, but you can tell that just the marriage is so strained and everyone around them knows it. This is after Ryuhei like explodes when he finds out Takashi's applying for the military and needs the approval and tells him no, but then proceeds to kick him out of the house. Yeah, because Takashi threatens, he's like, well, I don't need your signature. I'll just go get another. I can get somebody else's to, to get me in. They'll make exceptions. I'm sure they'll work with me in, in some way. He's like just trying to. Like, yeah, and, and Takashi's like, well, you know, when you join the U.S. military, you're fighting to like create peace in the world. I was like, oh, no, he's <laughs> yeah. like he's fully just drinking the Kool-Aid. Mm -hmm. um, and and then, you know, he's uh, Ryuhei's like, you know, you don't you don't keep me safe i keep you safe that's how this works and then takashi's like what are you talking about where do you even go every day dad and like it's just this you know it's like the curtain drops everybody it everybody knows what's going on at this point like he knows that they know that he doesn't have a job and they kind of still try to keep up appearances and he even acts like he doesn't know that they know from that point but like that's the moment where the facade is is just completely gone yeah um, and, and this is a beautiful moment where we don't see the actor who plays Takashi. Um, we don't see his face at all during that exchange. It's mm -hmm. all on Ryuhei. It's all like everything that's reflected off of his face and his expression is the reaction he's having um, to his, his son in that moment. Uh, and it's such a beautiful moment that could have been done, you know, in one twos in some way and, and try to like, let's get both of the facial expressions in this exchange. Just get a tense, like gaze and stare between each other. But instead it still maintains that like voyeuristic. We're just watching this. Like mm -hmm. you're only in one angle. That's all we're going to get from this, this particular interaction. And you get the light of the train too. I think at one point, um, just, just to remind you like that the rest of the world's still going on. Like everything is still churning in this concrete jungle. Like all the, the, machinery and everything is it doesn't care it's unflinching um yeah that, that's interesting I, I think that that's a good example of a, a kind of scene that like a lot of directors would turn that into like a scene to showcase their actors right and you're talking about having to one two back and forth like that would be a scene where they would like show the clip at the oscars when ryuhei is nominated for for best actor or whatever you know and they're like you know would yeah be zooming in on the faces cutting back and forth and you know trying to play up the emotion in that way but the way the scene is done it's like it's less concerned about getting the um, like capturing everything in the face of each character and more concerned about capturing the tone of the scene and conveying the mood in the room to the audience and and I think a way that comes through a, a lot more effective than kind of your normal the normal way an American director would shoot that scene who's shooting like a studio prestige film um you know, it, it, it kind of reminds me of, of Roma a little bit in that way, the way it, it's shot where, you know, mm -hmm. you're kind of uh, standing back like outside the window looking in at conversations rather than kind of being in them. And it feels it makes it, you know, the distance draws you in and makes you feel more a part of what's going on rather than than pushing you away. Yeah, it, it feels feel like it fills the space and not the screen necessarily. Yes. Mm -hmm. yeah. yeah. There's a lot of Wan Kar Wai or 
Tokyo story in this that are similar, right? Where it's a melodrama, but it's not the, like, like you're saying, like classical melodrama. It is much more about the situation and less about exactly the people. Yeah. Um, and, and from this point, like Takashi's kind of out of the picture now that he's off to, to, to wharf effectively. Um, and we're left with, you know, the, this, the murder suicide that happens with Kurosu, all of these other things that like compound with Ryuhei that make him accept, like, I just need to take this job. Um, I don't even remember when for me, like the most traumatic scene happens where, uh, he gets that letter. It's, is it right after, um, I can't remember where this goes in, but he gets the letter from the piano teacher early, basically Mm -hmm. like Megumi's like finds that piano and it's like, I'm going to help you. We'll figure out how to, how to tell your father. Um, and unfortunately the piano teacher is a bit too eager to say, Hey, your son's actually might be a prodigy. Uh, and so they get that letter and immediately Ryuhei like flies into an authoritarian rage. Um, he's like throwing his son around and that scene was so fucking tense. Yeah. Uh, it was crazy. Um, did that kid have like a stunt double or how is this done? Because (laughs) I, I, I hope not. I hope it was just like a mannequin or something, but fuck, it looked real. Um, he takes a pushing. Yeah. Yeah. He does. Yeah. He's slapping him around real hard and pushing around the kitchen. And then Megumi kind of calms them down. But then all of a sudden they both go upstairs and the next thing you know, Kenji is just flying down the stairs head first, like back of his head slamming into the wood floor. And yeah, just uh, one of the most upsetting moments in a movie that I've seen in a while. Yeah. yeah. Later when Kenji's like running away, he takes a spill onto the concrete. When or I think it's when the guys are like tackling him at the bus and look, he like hit oh, his head yeah, on the yeah. concrete too. I was like, oh man, this is, I don't, I don't know if that kid is actually taking yeah. those hits or what they it make it look rough. so convincing it too. Yes. It's very I, convincing. I saw the behind the scenes for the stairs and it was, it, it was him doing the stunt. It was pretty intense. Like I was like, damn. Wow. Um, but yeah, like they, they this kind of culminates in after, uh, uh, Ryu has taken the job as a janitorial worker, um, in a mall. he, he goes to work the one day after all of that's been happening. And this is kind of like the last straw of he's walking, cleaning up a a thing. Somebody spills like a giant shake nearby. Some kid spills it. Mm -hmm. And the mom's like, let's just leave. (laughs) Like while the kids are standing right there. (laughs) Uh. Um, And he's like, (sighs) and he's, he's kind of cleans it up and starts to walk away. And that's when he runs into Megumi, his wife, they like lock eyes. And he just goes, it's not, it's not what it looks like. Like, uh, he's uh, Chigaimas. It's like, oh, it's wrong. It's wrong. Like you're not right. And he, he just starts running. Like he just like sprinting, sprinting. Yeah. <laughs> like he's being hunted by a bear. <laughs> he's just fucking going. Um, and a bear with a human voice. <laughs> and yeah. And this is the only time that we get, uh, this is the only time we get a, um, uh, a time that's given for like framing the story. It says like three hours earlier and we get, this whole story, side story of Megumi, um, which who knew Chekhov's window, right? Everybody yeah. like he, mm-hmm. he crawls in the window at the beginning saying he's like just checking to make sure if it's locked or not. And then uh, lo and behold, this comes to, to fruition as Megumi's home alone. Um, and 
the window seems to be open suddenly and there's like blowing curtains. She goes over to check it out and there's a robber in their house that abducts her basically, uh, tries to like rob her and they don't have anything cause they don't have money, um, due to all of this, this pressure. Uh, and so it, ends up being this like the robber's like okay well fuck i gotta leave then he starts to leave he takes off his mask hides in a corner because he hears police sirens <laughs> then he realizes that megumi's seen his face and he's like shit i don't know what the fuck to do <laughs> i just got this like kitchen knife so he he kidnaps her and it's this weird yeah he um, goes to steal the car but he's like i can't drive a car <laughs> <laughs> yeah and again uh we didn't we didn't talk about this earlier but megumi like rubs in takashi's face like i got my driver's license and takashi's like do you even know do you even want to drive she's like eh, i just preferred to have this license because why not um <laughs> I, I think it makes me feel fancy better than like a, a membership card or something um and so megumi's like of course i know how to drive i have a driver's license <laughs> uh they they kind of get in that and, and it's this serendipitous, like sadly serendipitous moment because Megumi has been asking for somebody to help her up or help her out of the situation. She's been starting to think more and more about like, uh, I don't even know what I'm doing here anymore. And now she's given um, a traumatic way to escape her other trauma um, as she goes right, by this diving guy. into new trauma. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> like I'm just going to be abducted. I'll drive this guy wherever he's going. Um, and she's just like up for it. At, at this point, she's like, sure, fine. I'll help you. I'll drive you wherever. Yeah, what's the worst that could happen? Yeah. We need to go to the mall though. I need to get stuff. Um, I need to get some supplies and whatever else. <laughs> this we guy is like the world's worst criminal. Like, I don't think he's ever committed a crime before in, in his life. And like, you know, comically bad at disguising his identity and then stealing the car. And then he just like parks in the back of the mall parking lot and just has his hostage go all the way into the mall and buy shit for him and come back. And he just trusts that she'll just come back. Like it just, yeah. the, the world's dumbest criminal. <laughs> and and it's, it's something that's emblematic of you get to see so many different paths of what can lead you in crisis to different ends. You get the murder suicide with Kurosu. You get the thief who at one point had some prestige or something like he clearly still has human decency and some trust, even though he's broken other trust in order to get some, things on his own. He like assaults her a couple times. He, he, I don't mean that he, I don't mean that people should have trust in him. I'm not yeah, saying yeah, that. Yeah. Okay. But he has trust in other um, people. He, yeah. he has trust in other people because there's still some part of him that, that kind of wants to believe that a, uh, that there is tradition or some honor, some kind of like system that he can buy into that mm -hmm. gets him. The, and so like when Megumi's honor like, among oh, kidnappies. Yeah. Uh, Megumi's just like, let me go in. I'll, uh, it's fine. I'll be back. I don't, where am I, where else am I going to go? Like, what am I going to do? She could like inform the police. She could do anything, but she actually goes and buys what they need and comes back to him and is like, just, just drive, just go. And you, you wonder if she comes back because she sees her husband working yeah. as a janitor and he's so terrified that he won't even like admit it and have a real conversation with her and sprints away. And so like at that point, she's just like, shit, all right, whatever. Like, I don't really, my, my life is in shambles. I'll just fucking go back out to the guy who kidnapped me. Like, you know, there's not really any better alternative at this point. Yeah. They, they drive out to the beach. Um, she is sexually assaulted by this, this 
douchebag thief dude who's hit hard times. I was feeling bad for him up until that moment. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Thankfully, she's good at fending herself, uh, defending herself and kind of pushing him off. And, and he's also still he's really conflicted between whether or not he wants to throw all of his morals to the wind or whether or not he wants to preserve some slice of who he was. Yeah. And so he, he pulls away. It takes like her basically smacking the shit out of him and being like, no, I said no for him to be like, fine. Well, I guess I'm just going to like sleep here. Um, and, and whatever, like he tries to make out with her on the beach to, uh, when they park the car and look out into the ocean. Yeah. Um, and it's just like, it's, comedic and also just disgusting at the same time she just like pushes him off and gets out and goes and steps and watches the ocean um she's clearly more there to meditate she's not like it's one of those things where this character in this moment i can see in his mind like a romance novels unfolding where he's like this is kind of one of those fantasies where bonnie like, and clyde baby done, yeah, <laughs> yeah. We're, we're on the lamb now and whatever um and she's clearly smacking the shit out of him to put that that shit to bed like common sense dude you you fucking abducted her so she's kind of just in her own crisis um M megumi wakes up the next morning well at this point yeah, we get yeah, the, the same, kind of like a, a unification all three of these stories at once of like her yeah. out going out with him like we kind of cut back between that ryuhi finds money behind a toilet when he's cleaning it yeah. just like this wad of cash uh, this plot line really bothered me. This was like the yeah. one part of the movie that I was like, what the fuck is going on here? Like I was very on board with, with most of the rest of, of, with all the rest of the movie and kind of what it was trying to do. And this, that little plot line, I was like, this doesn't make any sense. And this kind of like, it pulled, pulled the movie down a little bit for me. I still really, really enjoyed it. And I think it's a really good film, but I just didn't really understand that, that scene at all. Him finding the money and not keeping it. Yeah. It, it's a part of like what he you are the choices that you make. You have this reflection where you can meditate on it. And like, you know, you have a devil over your shoulder that says, nobody knows you're going to take that money. Nobody's there watching you. But if you still have for yourself, some integral principles of like, I am going to make a good decision. I'm going to make this choice. I won't take whatever this money is. I have no idea what it's going to get me into or any of these things. Mm -hmm. You might be more inclined to make that decision. And considering that he has inherently run away from everything leading up to that point. This is a moment where he's given an easy out and he decides to not take that. And instead he's like, this will be like why my one kind of deed that I won't, I won't do. I'll put it in there. I guess, yeah, yeah I guess like a moment of acceptance and him kind of coming to terms with his new stage in life. And I understand that. And that character arc is interesting and satisfying, but like, the way that they did it, I was like, wait, what? He finds an envelope stuffed with cash behind a toilet in a public bathroom. Yeah. Okay, that's drug money in all likelihood. <laughs> yeah. Like, it's not like you're stealing this from some, like, you know, good cause here. And, and it's not stealing. You just found it. And then he puts it in, like, a public lost and found box, like, on a street corner. That's just not, that's not going to make it back to whoever lost it. Yeah. It's not going to go toward anything useful. Like, you might as well just, like, help your family with that with that money like hey pay for your kids piano lessons you know hey help your yeah. help your wife to be able to like pick up some hobbies or you know do it's, some it's other things still I like almost last saw vestige it, of pride i almost uh, saw it as like right. yeah megumi like falls asleep in the tide right mm -hmm. and then mm -hmm. ryuhi gets hit by a van and is yeah. like fucked up 
and he passes out on the street and then they both wake mm. up okay and go back home and it's after and that he spends the night in in jail in jail yeah he, he tries, tries to run to away run away and like fair jump on a bus he also yeah. his friend who has asthma tries to get away from his dad and that was a whole like sad oh, shit man. story yeah no. shit. he's like yeah if my dad catches me he's gonna beat me and then of course he does yeah. and thankfully yeah. that's off screen but oh man yeah yeah and so I, I see that Ryuhei puts the cash back in after that, and it almost seems like all three of them hit this like absolute low and kind of transform to where afterwards, that's where Ryuhei is like, I don't need this cash. I am okay as a janitor. Like That's who I am mm -hmm. now. In fact, at the end, we don't see him in a suit anymore. Like he's wearing a yeah. jacket, but he doesn't have a tie or anything. His colors, you know, he's not wearing the dark colored suit anymore. So I almost felt like he hit that low and then was just like, no, I don't, I don't need this anymore. Like I don't have to be the one with the money or, or whatever. Like he just kind of gives in to who he is now. Yeah. I could see that being the, the kind of point of it is he's hit an acceptance. Like you have that with that money. Yeah. You can get back to a, per, a certain level of status or there's that temptation to it. And he's like, no, I think that I'll try to make this work. I'll figure out what this is. Um, also he's been hit by a fucking car. And yeah. so there's yeah, like, your medical yeah. bills, man, yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you may not even have any left over. <laughs> um, but yeah, like it, it's, it's his own traumatic experience, which we, even before that we see like when he's running away, that's, I, that scene is so I, I love that scene because it's so tragic to see him the long shot of him running and continuously stumbling. Like he's so weak, mm -hmm. but he's still like everything in him is pushing. It's like um, the last bit before an ego death basically is what it yeah. feels like where every piece of him that's trying to preserve who he was is pushing him to run away from his wife, to run away from his responsibilities and, and actually admitting to himself who he is uh, and, and what's next for him and accepting that. Um, as he falls into trash and trash and then he f eventually is just completely hit with like the acceptance basically mm -hmm. uh, in the physicality of manifestation of a van, of course, uh, <laughs> as many of us are hit with when we come to acceptance. Um, <laughs> but yeah, uh, there, there's just that bit. Um, and seeing them all kind of come after, uh, come to the realization like Mugumi wakes up on the beach and sees the sunrise um, and it's beautiful, but it's also the sunrise over the tire tracks of the car that goes straight into the ocean. Yeah, he's, yes. um, the, the yeah, he's drove on. Other Very subtle little it. like background thing. Oh, yeah. her captor drove into the ocean last night. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> wow. And and it's it's that thing where she's like, well, um, I I'm not going to do that. Like even if even if she was, um, there's there's no way now. Like she would have to. She's not going with her captor. He's on his own thing. Um, he's, he's at the bottom they, of the ocean under the sea like, under the sea <laughs> yeah Kenji also like won't talk to the cops like they're like oh we can just send you home just say your name or say where you're from or whatever and he won't talk and that's why they throw him in the into prison with all these adults yeah um, but it, I kind of all three of them run away right and then mm. they all just walk back home and we get them yeah. all three mm -hmm. again back at home at the table Got you know we see the same it's scenes of how they, they came come back home one from by before. one yeah. yeah and then they all sit at the table and eat again um in kind of a silence but it's different right it's yeah. and it's the same view we had through the kitchen 
the way they come back in is kind of the same way they came in earlier. It, it doesn't feel like they're just coming back like they do every day before. Like they just come back out of road. Like this almost no. feels like they actually are like, okay, I'm, I'm going to go back home. Like I, I I'm going to go yeah. for it now. Are you suggesting they went into the shimmer, Ryan, and they came back different? Yeah, they came out different. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. it, it seems to like they, they come back and they act the same kind of as they have acted where they're not talking to each other really. They're just sitting and eating in silence, not really engaging. But there seems to be like a level of calmness there and, and acceptance with their new situation where the silence now feels like a kind of an intimate recognition that they all are kind of coming back together and going to try to make this work in a way that doesn't need to be said. I don't know how they know that they've all gone through these horrific journeys through, through the night, but they seem to just kind of understand that. And it's just this interesting, um, just kind of family dynamic where like they've seen. So the silence has seemed so separating throughout the film where they're not talking to each other and they don't know what's going on in each other's lives. And then when they come back together, it's kind of a, a bond between them. Yeah. Um, it, it is interesting. Yeah. To, to Ryan's note, like you get these cyclical shots the routines of their day and where they would intersect in their story. Uh, and in their lives, like they, at the dinner table is obviously one of the prime places that they meet and, and, uh, gather and they'll spend time together and to see it. Yeah. With this con contextual shift, like you as an audience member, your context has changed too. Um, it, even if I I'm kind of curious if I come back to this movie in years and I were to only watch the beginning dinner scene and the final dinner scene, um, what I could pull from it or what somebody might be able to pull, um, just from the silence and the way that the room is filled with it. Not even like, you know, yeah, Ryuhei's covered in dirt. He's, you know, dirty. You can tell something and he's is wearing happened. his janitor suit, he's, which yeah. he's never done at home before. And, and, uh, Kenji says, dad, you look funny. Like you're dressed funny or something. <laughs> and it's, it's this moment where like, he's, he doesn't do anything in retaliation to that either. There's not like a, I'm going to hit you because you said that to me. Like, He's just kind of like, yeah, I, yeah, sure. Um, and then we get kind of the, the, the final sequence where they're like, let's go to, to this audition that, uh, Kenji has for a school or it's an application race to play, a uh, Sonata. Do they, do they um, get the letter first? They, they got the Takashi. letter whenever, I think they get the letter first. Yeah. From Takashi. Yeah. Yeah. They, yeah, they yeah. get this letter from Takashi, which I think is pretty interesting to, to talk about where he has said like, you know, I have realized in my journeys and time in the U.S. military that the U.S. aren't the only people that are right and that there are other people who have reasons for fighting and doing what they do. And I think in order to find true happiness, I need to fight alongside the people here against the U.S. And um, it's just such a fucking sad letter. Like the, you know, the three family members that are still here in Tokyo have kind of come to terms with their new lives and are trying to move forward and to find a new version of kind of happiness in, in their new lives. And Takashi is really not able to do that because he's off wherever, probably Afghanistan or Iraq or somewhere, and has probably found some radicalist group 
there that he's like joining some militia and, and fighting on behalf of. And it's like he thinks that he needs to dedicate his life to some noble cause in order to find purpose and meaning. And he's just kind of jumping around from radical imperialism by the U.S. to whatever group that he's joining now. And it's just like, man, it's just such a sad kind of side effect of imperialism and how like American interference in other nations creates a lot of militarism and extremism among groups of people that otherwise would just be living peaceful lives and not having to deal with any of that shit. It's also like the, the perpetuation of this idea that there is always some kind of right that I must do that, that uh, there's a system that can provide me with a right, a moral right that will fulfill and justify my existence and and be my purpose. Um, and that kind of very black and white mindset and that for like, you know, Ryuhei was, uh, initially I'm a salary man. If I'm not a salary man, I'm nobody. I'm not going to be a janitor. I have to be this if I want to be somebody. Um, same thing for his son, even though unfortunately uh, the irony there being that like Ryuhei's example spurred his son in the similar direction, but with different ends, um, and a different area and, and location. And so, yeah, that there is that like down note that's hit it's not quite um the nightmare that megumi had but it's it's something just as tragic i would say uh that's that's leading into it yeah um yeah there is a certain amount of like he's he's rejecting what he originally saw as the noble cause right mm -hmm. this sort of obsession with american westernism Right, which is what we're talking about, this sort of split in Japanese culture that they had adopted Westernism so much that then screws them over <laughs> later, mm -hmm. right, in the 2000s. Yeah. And Takashi kind of learns that this nationalism that America was having at the time, too, is also fucked up and rejects both and says, hey, there are people here who are happy in this different way and wants mm -hmm. to explore that. So I, I, yeah. I kind of saw it that way of like, he's rejecting, like he's accepting that there's other viewpoints and he wants to follow those. It is weird yeah, where he picks to be. <laughs> like I agree that, yeah. you know, if he'd have said, oh, I'm now in yeah. Europe or something, it could have been similar. The fact that he's staying in Afghanistan is a little different. And, and also like, exploring those other viewpoints by taking up arms and like fighting people in, in the uh, militia. Like, you know, it's a bit, it's taken it a little far, I think. <laughs> yeah. I would much rather the letter have said, I have met Albert Brooks. I will be joining him on <laughs> his comedy <laughs> tour. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, I met this very unfunny comedian, but there's something about yeah. him. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, and so we were treated to a final scene that uh, uh, is um, I one of my favorite usages of uh, Claire de Lune um, as a song, mm. as a composition, um, which is Kenji's uh, piano recital. Uh, that's all that I can describe it as. It's like Ryuhei. It's like a, and, a tryout for this special music school that his piano teacher wants him to attend. Yeah, and um, Ryuhei and Megumi show up uh, despite, you know, this is another sign of like, Ryuhei has changed. He's he's willing to come and see his son do this. He could have stayed home. Megumi could have been the one who shows up to represent the family, but he he opted to come. Um, and this is where he's dressed we, down. Was, yeah, he shows up here and he's yeah. not wearing the full suit 
Like he's this still is wearing like thing. a blazer, but he's yeah. not wearing a tie and like a yeah. suit. Yeah, he's not having to put it's up the pretenses casual. as much anymore. Yeah, and you uh, see him at his janitor job right before this, like happy with his job. Like he's actually like okay, or yeah. at least not visibly upset. Yeah, which yeah. is a big improvement from what we've seen. Absolutely, uh, he goes. They go and pick a seat, and they sit down, and we we see some kid that's playing like. He's playing a hardcore or something, man. That kid's ripping on that piano. Uh, yeah, he's like, oh, shit, this kid's really good. And yeah, like, <laughs> and um, and Kenji comes up, and there's just silence, and, and we get this beautiful moment where we're just treated to the in, the entirety of Claire de Lune. Like, it mm-hmm. lets it play the full way through, and uh, Kenji, uh, the, the actor who plays Kenji, he learned how to play uh, a majority of it so that they could make it look as realistic as possible. Oh, yeah, I thought he was through. just straight yeah. up playing it. Yeah, yeah, they did a really they, they good They did job. that. They covered some. Yeah, they covered some scenes, but the rest of it was was legit. Like he, the moment he got the role, I think he started learning how to play piano too, and was like, oh, I'm, wow. "I'm in on this." Um, and it just, it's one of those things where like, I'm not his parent, but I'm so damn proud of Kenji. Yeah, oh, uh, he just yeah. nails it, <laughs> and you can see in like Ryu his eyes, like any kind of reservation he may have had about his son being some kind of prodigy or like he was so insistent that like, that's not what you're going to do. That's never, it just all melts. Like he just melts in that moment. And there's not like excessive tears or crying. It's just, it wells within him and you can see his eyes get more and more reflective as he's kind of holding back, uh, uh, the, the tears of pride that he has for his son. Uh, Megumi is equally touched and surprised at exactly how all of this turned out. And it's this moment of, of just, uh, a pure kind of like hope, what, what can happen next from here? Like mm-hmm. with, with this kind of circumstance. And, uh, as soon as he's done, they come and collect him. Like they, they get him from the piano and they walk with him. We don't even get to see if he gets into the school. It doesn't fucking matter. But uh, everybody in that room is staring at Kenji. Yeah. Like, Holy shit. Yeah. Like, yeah. All these and it's people like come the kid walking before in. Him, yeah. Yeah. The kid before him was clearly really talented, but he was playing a song that didn't really have a lot of like soul to it. And then Kenji plays Claire de Lune, like just so beautifully. And it's just such a, um, such an emotional song and it, it just he plays it so well and it may not be technically as difficult as the one before but you can tell he is like very connected to the music in a way that the other kid maybe isn't and everybody there recognizes like holy shit this kid is fucking great <laughs> and the yeah, yeah the way that everyone in that crowd like watches them walk out like everyone in the room watches Kenji, Ryuhei, and Megumi walk out of the room. Like they're all just awestruck. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And no it, applause, just dead silence. It's yeah, and it's it's beautiful too because while he's playing it, the crowd keeps growing. Like people are getting closer and closer. Like they're being pulled in by what he's doing, and he's doing like, um, you know, there's there you could pantomime feeling playing that piece. That's the other thing that's really convincing is the actor who plays Kenji. I think that he genuinely feels the emotion that he's channeling to play that as he's doing it. Like um, it might be the case that other actors or uh, other people who play a piece like the kid before him too, um, you're channeling as much energy. Cause you're like, I'm going to nail this. Uh, but Kenji's like channeling all his frustration and sadness into it and really feels it coming through. Like, and that was something that 
uh, I watched like some of the bonus features on my DVD and the, the, that actor again, he was like, when I was studying the piano, I didn't want to just learn how to play the keys. I wanted to learn how to feel it when I was doing it. Oh, wow. And he went through it with like an instructor. Something you can like, learn. Apparently it's something that like he was trying to, I think he talked to like his piano teacher was asking for like empathetic notes on like, how do you feel it? How does this go? How, do, how are you channeling when you're doing it? And he would watch other pianists, like when they play it, something that's personal to them. And he would try to figure out like what might, connect me to it. How could I do this kind of motion? It was really fascinating to hear about it. Yeah. Cause I was like, yeah, that's something that like, I don't know how you get into that mode. It's something seems so intangible about, yeah, really nailed looking like I was emotionally invested in playing the song rather than like, I really just played the song and I, I wanted to get it right kind of mode. Um, but yeah, it gave me so much more appreciation for seeing that scene. I was like, damn, uh, there's a lot of effort that went into making the full usage of Claire de Lune justified. Yeah. Um, and I thought it was really well done. And, and you mentioned John is one of your favorite uses of this movie, this song in, in film. I definitely was like, Oh yeah, I've recognized this song from lots of movies. Like, I feel like it seems like something that I would have seen in like a Noah Baumbach film or something. Like, I, I'm not sure. I'm sure there are several movies that I've seen this song used and it's a great fucking song and it, it, you know, used in the right way can be really powerful, but it's amazing how just a kid, playing it on the piano at the end of a movie is one of the best uses of any song in a movie that I, I've ever seen. It's like, it doesn't have to be necessarily paired with like a really emotional scene or a beautiful montage or something. It's just, you know, it's just kind of encapsulating the hope that the family has at the end of the movie and kind of the acceptance of moving forward into their new phase of life. And it's just a, just a beautiful way to end the film. Yeah. After you've had this and, uh, like heightened emotion from all three of these like running off scenes and the danger that they got into, mm-hmm. it, it just slows it down so much and is a relief to just sit and listen to it along with everyone else there. Yeah, it it's also a well, I think it's like thematically named uh, the, the Claire de Lune translates from French to Moonlight. And that is the one thing that guides you in darkness. Like there's lights, uh, there's like the stars that you can kind of see, but on like a, a really dark night, moonlight is the one thing that gives you visual for where you're going. And mm-hmm. after having seen this family go through a really fucking dark period, this being the moonlight of that darkness, the hope that's going to hopefully lead them to better things in the future. It, it is an emotional catharsis for the characters and the audience. And it, every time that I hear that song now, it's amazing because that entire emotional experience is collapsed in it. And I only saw that movie once before this, really. I think there was one other time I, I showed it to Sasha's parents and uh, they're not big subtitle readers. So that became a whole mm, thing yeah. where they were like, I don't know what's going on. Um, and so that kind of like dampered the, the, actually getting them to have the same conveyed emotion. But for me, like anytime I've heard it, I think about this movie first. I think about some other things second, like everything ever all at once uses Claire de Lune at one point. Um, it, it seems to be a song of like emotional epiphany when something is mm-hmm. really kind of coming clear to you. Uh, but I, I just fucking love this song. It's so good. Is that why you thought like of this oceans. movie? Because you saw everything everywhere all at once that like is three actually, times in three days. And yeah, <laughs> it really, every time that I hear it, I, it reminds me of the song. So I think that it like has been growing in my mind because of that probably. Yeah. Um, interesting. Yeah. I was gonna say uh, the one I think people think of is the oceans 11 use of it where they're all like breaking up and walking away at the end. 
<laughs> oh, is that really? That's clear to win. Oh yeah, my God. yeah. <laughs> I haven't seen Ocean's Eleven in a long time. <laughs> oh no, George Clooney gets to go be handsome somewhere else. <laughs> so sad. Yeah, emotionally devastating. <laughs> oh man. Um, well, yeah. Did Did y'all have any other uh, takeaways from the movie or things that you really wanted to highlight and talk about? Um, I, I'm kind of aside from like the bit that I did at the beginning, drinking the beer fully, which was something we didn't talk about. That's more of just a scene that happens. <laughs> just downs that first one. Yeah. 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 And the, the rest of the family, you can tell like doesn't feel comfortable eating until he starts eating. And that's kind of clearly the patriarchal, patriarchal environment that he has created within this family. Like nobody fucking eats until dad eats, you know? So yeah. he's like, I think I'll get a beer and just like, yeah, just sits there chugging the beer while everyone has to sit there waiting it, patiently it's such a weird mix of like in that one scene it's such a weird mix of ryuhei's like sadness overwhelming him and kind of what he's conflicted about sitting at the table with his whole family and he's like we're all here time for me to like exercise my authority i'm gonna get me a beer everybody has to wait and he just sits and drinks it and he says like tasty like halfway through and then he just chugs the rest of it like there's no mm. savoring really no he just goes full in he just um, really needed a fucking beer. It was a hard day. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and he couldn't talk about it or wouldn't, yeah. wouldn't talk about it. <laughs> yeah. It made me um, think of, uh, have you seen the sound of your heart on Netflix, a Korean based on a, a no. Korean show based on a webtoon? There's it's mm-hmm. all comedy. Uh, by the way, if you want something <laughs> as a relief, it's all comedy, but there's a scene where one of the sons is at work and it's, it, it's the same sort of stuffy business, um, kind of situation. And each person can't leave until their superior leaves, but they all want to go oh, home. Like they're all pretending I know to that work. Exact, <laughs> that was the environment at PWC. Like you wait five <laughs> minutes until the person above you leaves. But like everybody works in the same conference room when you're out at a client. So like the partner leaves and then five minutes later, the senior manager leaves right. and five minutes later, the manager leaves. <laughs> and like I, toward the end when I was there, I got so fed up with it. I was just like, I don't give a shit. I'm leaving. Like I'm not doing this fucking song and dance. Everybody knows I'm just gonna be here, sitting here for 15 minutes surfing the web until I can leave like that's stupid <laughs> yeah yeah and i think at uh, the end when they come in they just eat right like there's not they don't even say yep. they just yeah eat, there's no like, yep the that pretense is, like is a, gone a, yeah exactly um it's funny that you you mentioned that that like waiting for somebody to leave and then other people to leave i met somebody recently who had uh stayed in japan for a bit worked at a company and he was telling me one of his stories where he was like, yeah, we were touring this building. We came across this team that was there after hours. It was like seven 30 or 8 PM, something like that. And mm-hmm. they're still there. And he asked like the, the woman who was showing him around, he's like, why are they still there? She was like, Oh, because they have an important thing that's due tonight. And he was like, Oh, are they all working on it? And she's like, no, like only one of them has to finish it. She was like, he was like, why do they all stay? And she's like, because they're a team. And that was like all that was said. Wow. And I was like, oh man. And he was like, yeah. And afterwards, if the boss was like, let's go get drinks, then you had to go get drinks and you have to go and be there until like two. And then you have to be back at work at like eight in the morning or Oof. whatever. <laughs> um, and he was like, yeah, it was brutal. I was like, damn, that, that sucks. Uh, <laughs> but yeah, the, the, we've gotten, I've taken us off topic now. Um, <laughs> my, my only other ending yeah. thought was kind of circling back on what I said at the beginning about this feeling like uh, the ripples of American policy affecting Japan. And, um, you know, like I said, I'm sure there are probably 
some other issues in the Japanese economy that are creating the situation with the layoffs. But like, even like you look at like the reason he was laid off is because of offshoring those jobs to China, which a lot of that is because of NAFTA and like the U.S. kind of propping up the Chinese economy in order to lay off our own citizens and and to kind of like move jobs over there that like created a an environment in China for them to kind of do that to other countries as well and, and take away uh, jobs in, in Japan. And then obviously like the American military and all, all the wars going on that affect Takashi and um, it, it just really like the, you know, the global financial crash, it, it all feels like, you know, kind of end of the Bush era, beginning of the Obama year politics playing out in Japan. And it's very interesting to see how impactful American policy is in other nations and how we just think about what we do here is what we do here, but it has such broad impacts on the rest of the world that we don't really think about. Yeah. I wouldn't even call those butterfly effects. Those are just like straight yeah, no, up. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's like the, yeah. we, you know, we fight a war in Iraq and that's like a fucking tsunami going around to the rest of the globe, impacting all these other things. Or, you know, we crash the world economy and obviously that has a massive impact everywhere. And yeah, yeah. it's just, yeah. uh, the, you know, the, the American, like I was, I was reading something the other today. It's like American consumer demand is like 33% of world consumer demand or something like that. So it's like when our economy drops, it just like it impacts everybody because we're importing so much shit from around the world. And, you know, it leads to layoffs all over the place when when that happens. Yeah, that, that's what happens. Like Japan got hit by us not importing like the trade <laughs> yeah. drop, right? Of yeah. us not buying cars because of our financial crash. The fact that we still don't think of everything as like a world market that we're all in this, like we still act like we compete. Mm in some way instead of like actually trying to understand these economies as interrelated tied economies that they really are now and we only do we only think of them that way in terms of how it affects um, the price of american consumer goods and the <laughs> stock price of american companies that's it <laughs> yeah why is our oil so high like gas price is so much to fill up my tank <laughs> oh, lots of, we could sit here for an hour and talk about that <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> why is joe biden oh, making man. their inflation in europe <laughs> uh so um yeah well, with that like would y'all recommend this to somebody else would you uh i i would uh i wanted y'all to see it i recommend it to to anybody out there who's interested in seeing you do have to have you know if you're having a great day Maybe, I don't know, you <laughs> table it for a time when you know you have the mental fortitude to go through something like this. It is it is a cathartic experience at the end, but there's a lot of darkness in it. Um, yeah, it's pretty bleak uh, for, for the most part. And, and honestly, like one thing that I didn't mention is like the end of the movie is hopeful that like, oh, this next generation, maybe they, they will save us. They can figure things out. Life will be better for them than it was for us. But it's like, we now know the answer to that question. And the answer is no, it's like yeah. a resounding no, that like across the world, every all young people today, millennials, Gen Z are so much worse off than their parents across the globe. Like, you know, if you're not in the top 1%, 5-10%, maybe like you are worse off now than you were in 2008. And, um, you know, it is it, the movie has a hopeful ending, but when you think about it in the context of where we are now, it's it's 
pretty it's pretty bleak. Yeah. Um, and I, I think like I, I definitely recommend the movie. I think it is a, a really well-made film and a, a you know, a, a great experience to watch and kind of understand some of these global impacts on a personal level and how they relate to real people. And it's just a a really interesting look into another culture and how kind of the nuclear family operates at a different level in Japan based on the expectations there versus what it does here. Yeah, I I was going to comment on that earlier that Ryuhei is a generation X in America. I don't know if they have the same you mm-hmm. know concepts of our generations in Japan, but in in the same time for us as in Japan, you that generation hit the realization that companies don't take care of you. Right. That was what right. yeah. the generation told Generation X. Like, oh, you get a job and you work there forever and you retire and they take care of you. And you that was the same thing in Japan. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. And the fact that he just is like unceremoniously told like, oh, it's over now. Go. What's your future from here? He doesn't know what to do. And his kids are the millennials, right? They're already rejecting. They don't see themselves in that future of a salary man at right. all. Um and you're right, there's that hopefulness that they accept where they're at, but we know it doesn't get better for millennials. Like, that, that yeah, these yeah, opportunities continue to be worse. Um, but no, yeah, I think it's a really great movie. I, I really dug it. It is a different take. I can see how this is a director with a horror eye doing his version of, in my mind, just keeps going back to Tokyo's story. Um, the, the kind of the same thing that generational shift people that don't want to talk about what's really happening um eventually coming around to the reality of like i don't want to do this like this is where i i should be i should be somebody different that's cool i haven't seen tokyo story yet i, I know i i need to i have i haven't seen any ozu and i have a Paul Schrader book about Ozu that I want to read that I have not because I haven't watched any Ozu films. So I, I, I need to, I need, I need to get it. It's about Dreyer, Ozu and Brisson. And I have watched a lot of Dreyer and Brisson and no Ozu. So somebody's in a catch 20 Tozu. No, I'm, just kidding. Oh. <laughs> I'm sorry. <laughs> I had to, I had to. Boo it was right there. <laughs> um, all right. And with that terrible pun and that boo earns, we will take a break everybody. Uh, there you have it. Recommends around the table. Hello there. I'm Canadian actor Raymond Burr. Your grandparents may remember me from the TV shows Perry Mason, Ironside, or Kingston Confidential. I've also starred in a handful of classic Hollywood motion pictures, like Rear Window, A Cry in the Night, and Airplane 2. You know, cinema is a powerful medium. It can bring people together and transcend the barriers of language and culture with visual bravado. But when you leave the theater, those barriers come rushing back. While filming the reshoots for Godzilla King of the Monsters, I had a hard time communicating with my Japanese-American actors. Not because they didn't understand or speak English, but because I didn't understand Japanese. Yes, I'm embarrassed to admit it, but even the great Perry Mason couldn't crack the case of a cultural divide like that. And it got me thinking. It's been decades since I stood on that Godzilla set and said my famous, my Japanese is a bit rusty. What did they say? And those words have echoed in my mind to this day. That's why I started the Raymond Burr Japanese Language and Culture Comprehension Program. 
so you too can learn how to shirk the responsibilities of deeply understanding another country and culture, just like my character Steve Martin did. We offer a variety of services, like our Books on Tape program, with real native Japanese speakers and scenarios. Have a listen. This is the part where you look to the closest bilingual person you know and say, I caught most of that, but would you mind recapping the rest? If no one else is around, politely nod and say, Tell me about it, Takamoto-san. And that's just a taste of the educational resources you'll have at your disposal. If you sign up now, you'll also receive a booklet of fun facts about the U.S. and Japanese cultural differences, phrases to help you avoid real communication, and, of course, a photo of me. So call now and start learning Japanese the Raymond Burr way. Welcome back, everybody, to Recommend or Refute. You know the rules. We go around the table, tell you about a movie that uh, maybe you should check out, or we tell you about a movie that maybe you should, uh, you know, push off to the side. And we try to make it fun when we do that, at least. So, you know, you know what you're missing out on. Hopefully not to entice you, though, <laughs> Ryan. No. <laughs> Uh, I think, John, like when you talked about America, the motion picture, that was like, oh, don't see this, but listen to all this funny shit that happened. <laughs> Kids, yeah. don't yeah. do drugs, yeah. but drugs it. are great. Don't do drugs, though. <laughs> and I was like, I have to watch you. You're like, no, no, seriously, don't. And I was like, you sold me. I have to watch it. And then it, it fucking sucked. I think I liked it less than you did. Fucking irony, man. <laughs> fucking irony gets me every time. <laughs> um, since I am the person that picked, I will talk about uh, the, the film that I watched. I watched two films this past week, and I'm going to pick one. One. Um, the other is Army of Darkness, and Army of Darkness, everybody probably knows about it due to cultural osmosis, so I don't need to talk about Army of Darkness. Um, <laughs> the movie that I will talk about came out a year before Army of Darkness, and I watched it yesterday in a dark dive bar that was uh, servicing as a micro cinema, which is a word that I'm not familiar with, but that's apparently a term that's used. Um, and uh, it was Vegas in Space. It's a 1991 um drag queen movie, sci-fi comedy. Um, okay. Shot and directed, written by, I'm pretty sure. Uh, do they launch they, Las Vegas into space? No, they oh, don't lost. They, they don't do that. So like there's an origin story behind it. This movie, basically the um, in San Francisco or in the Bay Area, I think, uh, West Coast, um, there is a, a, a posse of, of drag queens who through themed parties had great times together. One of them had always wanted to be an actor, wanted to be in Hollywood. Um, uh, and, and that, uh, that queen's name was Doris Fish. Doris Fish was like, I want to be in a movie. I want to do my thing. I want to do it. It's fine. Um, and one year they threw a party called uh, Vegas in Space and they decorated this whole apartment and all of its rooms in this killer space uh, out like kind of like low budget Star Trek style uh, and immediately after the party was over, everybody's like, all right, well, let's go home. And Doris was like, fuck that. Let's make a movie. I want to be a movie star. I'm gonna make Vegas in space. And they kept the apartment that way for years so that they could make this film. Is this a story behind the making of the film or is this a film within the film? That's the story behind the making. <laughs> okay. It's not that a film would, within a film. That would be amazing. <laughs> yeah. That's some like astrologer level shit. Uh, and so like, um, yeah, Doris Fish decides to get all of all of her buddies uh, and make this, and it was a wild fucking ride. Uh, it's something that 
I can recommend in a crowd setting highly. Uh, if you, if you go see it, like there's a lot of goofy shit that goes on in it. It's like, there's no real guerrilla filmmaking outside of it. Very creative. Um, you can think of it as just completely constrained resources and how they made, they make miniature sets that are all like clearly like bottles and other things that are arranged to look like a sci-fi city. And they have like smoke and all this stuff that they shake to make it look like, Oh, the city's having an earthquake <laughs> or whatever. It's, it's campy. It's goofy. It doesn't take itself seriously at all. Um, as a movie full of drag Queens should like, it just has fun. That's the whole purpose of the film. Um, going into it, I wasn't sure whether or not I, I would really dig it. If it would just be like too like, over the top for me and like, okay, some of the humor it's like, you know, maybe it's going to be puns or something like that, but almost every joke or every goofy sequence lands. And there are these interesting shots where you're like, Oh, that's, that's neat filmmaking from like an independent perspective for somebody Mm. who's always wanted to be part of cinema. Doris fish obviously was watching and learning from the movies that, that, she'd seen growing up. And so uh, it has this goofy opening where basically like the whole point of the, show is or the plot is uh there are these space cadets being sent from earth to uh space vegas on a mission to figure out who stole these um there's some kind of like rare it's like unobtainium but it's called something yeah. even dumber uh <laughs> or like or not dumber it's i would say cleverer probably it's like gorillium or something like that i'm like sure why not um and uh it, it's like whoever stole it is causing the planet to have like these issues because of that uh never really tries to go out of its way to over explain that doesn't really care that's the motivation it needs to be what it's going to be uh however this planet is women only and so this space All troop right. of men must take these pills to turn into women uh. and that's where the drag <laughs> aspect comes into play and there's this whole goofy segment where the the planet that space vegas orbits is called clitoris and yeah and it's in the (laughs) beaver quadrant so there's like all this absurd like shit going on just totally uh like and when they transform into women they also go undercover as american showgirls from the 20th century (laughs) so there's even more of like these crazy wild themes of like well we had we know that we have these outfits we know we're going to do this let's let's make it as cohesive as possible they have um a bunch of really creative like dream sequences that happen where there's like they really channel like an unease and unsettling nature with the dream sequence for the characters. But then other characters will come in and have like meta dialogue about it and be like, it's okay. You're, you're okay. You were just having a dream sequence and like (laughs) shit shit like that'll happen. Um, and so, uh, yeah, like the, the mystery of it all wasn't the thing that pulled me through. It was more of seeing, it's like seeing a movie that your friends made and watching them have fun doing it. And just the energy comes through on the other side of it. It's not something that's going to, um, really like break a lot of ground in, in a way that like is it's not a profound drama. It's not going to win Academy Awards. It doesn't need to, it doesn't care about doing any of that. Um, it's just another really great example of like any filmmaking can be for fun. It doesn't have to be for cans. It doesn't have to be for, for a film festival. It can just be, I just want to make this with my friends and I want other folks to see it. Um, how it got distribution is another interesting story where like the rights were picked up by Troma, who's done like uh, published Toxic Avenger and uh, Newcom High and all these other la- these other films, cult films. Um, and then it started to get syndicated on like TV and it would run kind of late night. And, really? Uh, yeah, apparently huh. so. Um, and, and it never really got like 
it of course has not gotten like a Blu-ray re-release or any of that, but it lives on in like a collective cult consciousness. And so um, the person who was presenting it, uh, he, he picked it for um, sentimental reasons is something that like he'd seen and Did had he have the a same print? experience. I, I don't know if it was a print or if it was like, he had rented or something like that. I have no idea how, what the copy was or where it was, was from, mm. but um, yeah, he gave this whole kind of history setting it up beforehand and talked about that and how it was, how it came to be and how it was distributed. And that it was basically like a late night movie on TV. And that's where a lot of the popularity for it started to surge. He was like people uh, who've seen it, they remember certain quotes from it. And it kind of has that same life that is given to it by, you know, didn't didn't do so well when it released maybe but afterwards it was given a second chance in like underground circuits and channels and so uh i was super happy that i got the chance to sit in and watch it um i i smiled a lot of the time during the movie it was just so absurd and goofy and fun uh and it was just a nice nice change of pace having seen tokyo sonata days before yeah <laughs> so <laughs> um yeah but uh, uh, I, I would recommend it if you can find it and watch it. I would say watch it with friends, too. Um, obviously, there's, there's that element. The social element is really what builds it for you. Uh, and, and don't try to take it too seriously. Please don't. You'll never enjoy it if you do. <laughs> uh, but, yeah. Um, well, yeah, that's, that's what I got. Vegas in space. And uh, it's, it's not available to stream or anything like that. Um, I will look it it's up. It's on we'll, Troma's. Oh, Troma yeah, service. Troma has distribution of it. So yeah, they have a service that has it. Looks like. Oh, interesting. Yeah, and then uh, I think it's and also then, on Amazon. Get, it says. Uh, Space Nazis must die, and all the other. Uh, oh, yeah. Nazis must die, and all the other great uh, Troma films. Yeah. Sweet. <laughs> I, I want to watch the movie called Vegas in Space, where the right-wing evangelical president decides that Las Vegas has become too sinful and needs to be launched into space in order to, uh, you know, punish it for its sexual <laughs> sins. Well, I think you're going to have to write a letter to Kirk Cameron, our old friend, <laughs> if you really want that to become a thing. <laughs> um, yeah, so Vegas in Space, y'all, I would recommend it. It was, it was a fun time. Uh, Ryan? What do you got for us? Yeah, uh, I watched Sonic the Hedgehog 2. Congratulations. Uh, which I think I probably had said before Why? I watched it. Yeah. <laughs> uh, Sonic the Hedgehog 1 wasn't bad. <laughs> so, I followed, so you were like, I surely the second more. one can't be that bad, right? <laughs> it's like exactly the same. It actually has like <laughs> almost exactly the same ratings on Metacritic and Rotten Tomatoes. That's sort of like... And also made a shitload by, of money. Yeah, yeah. It's like 50% by critics, 95% by audience rating. <laughs> um, Sonic 2, I mean, it, it's if you watch Sonic 1 and you enjoyed it, Sonic 2 is more of the same. There's not too much more to say beyond that. It really just fully embraces coming from the video game, where I feel like the first Sonic tried to add like a, all right, how can we get him into our world and change enough of it to not be exactly the stories from the video game. This one was just like, let's just hit every beat of things that people know from the Sonic games. Um, yeah, they bring in tails and knuckles. Uh, tails actually has the voice actor that did tails in the old cartoons. Oh really? Um, while Idris, Idris Elba is Knuckles. Knuckles. Yeah. Uh, that seems out of place. Yeah. That's a little too much gravitas yeah. to Knuckles, I think. <laughs> I, yeah. I think it's one of those I can do a movie my kids can watch kind of deals, you know? Mm. Um, 
which I thought was interesting that the same thing with the Chip and Dale, they got all new people, but then the voice actress for Gidget is the same as it was before for Gadget. So there's a theme of like, well, we'll bring back one person who did it before. Hmm. Idris Elba, by the way, is hamming it up. Oh, I, I would hope tell so. He was having a good time. Yeah, yeah he was having a good time. <laughs> if we can't um, have a good time and, watching it, at least hopefully Idris Elba had a good time doing it. <laughs> yeah, yeah, for sure. Well, and Jim Carrey took it to a whole nother level. He was oh, yeah? doing his own thing in Sonic the Hedgehog. He's doing it like tenfold more. In I this did one. see like, Sonic the in, Hedgehog. He's in a different and Jim movie. Carrey was good in it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Classic he was Carrey. enjoyable. There were so many times I was just like, what? is what was he even doing? <laughs> what is even going on here? I don't even know. Um, so it was enjoyed like that. I enjoyed it. Like just watching the, the craziness of all of it. And it as a person who enjoyed the Genesis Sonic games. It hits what you would expect it to hit um, where you're like, okay, this is knuckles. He's going to be an idiot and think Sonic is the bad guy at the beginning and then get tricked by Dr. Eggman. Um, he builds a giant, <laughs> Eggman robot thing like you would expect they bring in the chaos emeralds like it's just yeah it sounds way more like absurd Sonic. than mm-hmm. Sonic and James Marsden take a, a road trip together yeah <laughs> road trip together. yeah yeah Th- this one is much more like it's a video game-esque like they're after this thing they got to go from place to place to try to find the pieces on the map to go get the you know it's a much more video game-esque yeah, a lot of fetch um, quests. It, yeah it does feel to me like interesting that we have video game movies now that are even half decent, <laughs> like that try and somewhat mm. embrace where they're coming from. Like it's only now that they finally are like, all right, I guess they can have their stupid knuckles and tails and weird looking Dr. Eggman. And whoa, people showed up. I guess they give a shit about this stuff. And then they look over at an uncharted and wonder why that didn't work. Yeah. <laughs> um, <laughs> Or, or the Halo TV series or whatever other thing they're working on where they just don't want to embrace like what it is that the audience loved about it. This one, they do. Like, if you like Sonic, there you go. It, it's more of the same. Yeah. Is it is it Dr. Eggman I, I guess, or Dr. I guess Dr. I endorse it. Is it Eggman or Robotnik? I, it's Robotnik originally? It, it was... I always thought Robot- it was Robotnik no, it's, as a kid. It's, it's Eggman in the Japanese version and then when it came to the states they said robotnik oh weird i guess for whatever reason back then they would try to translate things a little bit and give them some flair in the american side that they thought was better and then in later games they just started using them interchangeably and even in the japanese stuff started using robotnik so it just kind of like intermingled to where it's confusing as to what his name even is. <laughs> Sonic pretty much calls him Eggman just to like rub it in his face is essentially. Yeah. Like an insult. Yeah. Canon now is the, yeah, he calls him Eggman. Um, yeah. So how was, how was the Sonic performance though? Like Ben Schwartzman still doing pretty much. He was so fucking Schwartz. annoying yeah, in the much first r- one. <laughs> more more or less the same. It's tempered a little bit by having other absurd characters around him. Things to play against. Yeah. Mm. Uh versus James Marsden staring at a green screen <laughs> trying to talk a to it. Ball. He's actually <laughs> yeah, he's actually like in a separate plot. For the most part it really is like Sonic and Tails versus Knuckles and Eggman. Yeah. Uh and James Mars then goes off to a wedding at the beginning and 
you could check in on him every so often. <laughs> it's over on the side. Two drinks like it's less later. of that, buddy. Yeah. He goes off to Palm Springs. <laughs> um, yeah, I remember, yeah. I think you told me that you watched this and my first reaction was, oh, well, my nephew, who's like five, walked out of the theater, which I was surprised. I would think that a child would want to see something wow. like this. But apparently he has higher standards. Not too high, though. He saw the Paw Patrol movie. <laughs> you did like that. That movie made made a lot of money. Yeah, it did. This one is like a lot more action. So I'm actually surprised that, you know, even a kid that has no idea what's going on that just wants to see like bright lights. um, This one has it. Like there's, you know, crazy surf scene down the mountain, you know, fighting tons. There's a giant robot at the end. Visual candy. Yeah. Yeah. It's just exactly all of that stuff. Gotcha. Um, So I don't know what. I don't know what his problem was. I, I heard that he, he rode the highs of those scenes and then he was bored as fuck when James Marston was on screen. <laughs> so, well, that's been that's, said about many yeah. films. But, uh, <laughs> that's fair. Not necessarily James Marston's fault, by the way. He gets a yeah. lot of yeah, dull no, no, no. roles. I like James Marston. Yeah, he's totally he's competent actor. Westworld. Yeah. yeah, I liked him yeah, in Westworld. He's got he's a Westworld TV show still. Yeah. yeah. Um, cool. So, so yeah, rec- I recommend for what it is. Nice. Is that the new qualification? Are you making these rules now? I recommend <laughs> yeah. for what it is. Well, well we're talking about <laughs> yeah, what is that even? We're talking about you said kids it's not movies. good. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's aimed at children, and the children will very much enjoy it. And parents that have to sit through it will be able to sit through it. Yeah, Ryan watched Better it without than his kids. That's his best. Other that's, kids' movies. That's, yeah. yeah no, I watched it with kids. No. This was not one I watched on an airplane when I could have been watching something better. Uh, thank God we're recording this now before you watch Morbius. Uh, <laughs> I'm sure that that's in oh, flight. I will watch Morbius. <laughs> right, you don't have to. <laughs> As Dixon always says, you can you can reach out for help. Yeah. There are plenty of other movies. <laughs> I watched the first Sonic the Hedgehog movie in a theater without any children except the ones that other people brought there. So I'm surprised I was even allowed to enter the theater and I wasn't just escorted out by security and immediately handcuffed. <laughs> I think that Dixon was like, what kind of performances are these? <laughs> like, lean over to like, <laughs> like wait a minute. You want a Sonic? Like a- the he- you want one ticket to Sonic the Hedgehog? Yeah. No, I'm sorry. You must be below 17 to buy a ticket to Sonic the Hedgehog. We're not going to let you into the theater. Like to think it's like the opposite. You have you have a trench coat. You're pretending to be a child. <laughs> to be two kids in a trench coat. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> two tickets. Uh, yeah, my brother is, is here below me. <laughs> now, I, I heard that uh, um, I was watching some other guy who watched Morbius. Uh, and this is an aside for how Dixon could have gotten into Sonic. He was like, <laughs> I don't. He was like, I, I find it unethical to support Morbius, but I'm still I still want to see it. So I'm going to buy a ticket to everything everywhere all at once and sneak into Morbius. <laughs> oh, nice. I like that. <laughs> He was like, yeah. That's a great idea, actually. <laughs> uh, legally, we can't say we endorse that idea, everybody. Oh, no, uh, I completely endorse that idea. It's just a great idea. idea. <laughs> Only buy tickets to indie films, even if you're going to go see a blockbuster film. <laughs> um, well, yeah, so, Ryan, you recommend it for what it is. Uh, for what it is. <laughs> Some weak shit, Ryan. That's a, it's a very half-hearted recommend. Click, That's an uh, I guess Sure, if you have nothing better That's to do. That's a fucking clickbait op-ed title. I recommend <laughs> hey. Sonic 2 for what yeah. it is. <laughs> and what it is is a pile between- of garbage. If you like <laughs> that, I recommend Sonic 2. <laughs> oh, man. Two. Two cans of hot flaming garbage. <laughs> <laughs> 
Uh, all right. Well, Dixon, what do you got for us? All right. So, uh, John, you know that I have been uh, trying to make my way slowly but surely through my massive Ingmar Bergman Criterion box set. And I am now nine films out of 39 of the way through. Um, I I've had seen a, you know, a handful of Bergman films before I bought this, but I'm, I'm making my way kind of through the films as they're displayed in, in the set. They're not in chronological order, but they're kind of that way. It's kind of structured by kind of thematically and, you know, kind of his earlier work had a little bit different kind of tone to it than some of his uh, kind of mid-career and later work. So uh, I've kind of gotten through the first segment of the box set. And one of the films that I watched uh, this past week was Summer Summer with Monica from 1953, which uh, I really loved. It was a, a really beautiful film. Um, some of Bergman's earlier work is him kind of like learning who he was and, and kind of finding his voice and kind of how to be the great director that he eventually became. But Summer with, with Monica is fucking great, um, you know, of, of his um, early works, one of the best. Um, it's his first collaboration with Harriet Anderson, who is the lead actress in Summer with Monica. She plays Monica. And um, you can really tell that he really loves her uh, the way kind of the film is shot. And uh, I believe they actually got married shortly after the film. And I don't think their marriage lasted very long, but they continued to work together a lot. Bergman worked with a lot of the same actresses throughout his career. Um, and he's actually known for making a lot of movies from the female perspective, which was very rare at the time, you know, 50s, 60s, 70s, when he uh, kind of was prominent in his career. But um, Summer with Monica, I thought it was a pretty fascinating film. It shot uh, during the summer in Sweden, as most of Bergman's films were, where, you know, in Sweden is so far north, the winters are very dark and very long, and the summer is like eight weeks of uh, like, oh my God, we finally have sunlight, and it's like sunlight all day. So like even the night scenes are, are pretty bright. Um, but it, and it's kind of the, like the perfect setting to kind of tell a like a young love story, which is what this is. And the movie kind of starts out with um, Harriet Anderson playing Monica and uh, the actor is Harry Lund plays Lars. And they're two young people, kind of late teens in uh, this Swedish town, kind of trying to, you know, kind of make it as adults. They're both working menial jobs that they hate. Um, they're treated really poorly at their jobs, uh, Lars is kind of like bullied by his boss and kind of forced to do, to work really long hours for really low pay. Monica is like sexually harassed at her job and just really kind of can't stand um, kind of the, the environment there, but there's really no alternatives for them in the economy of that town. And so they basically decide like, fuck it. Like we both, like, I think you're cute. You think I'm cute. Let's just like flee the city and steal a boat and like go and like hang out in the wilderness for the summer and just like hang out and fuck and fall in love and like scavenge the land for food. <laughs> and um, it's, it's a really beautiful kind of young love, young lust story about these two characters as they are kind of trying to figure out who they are and kind of try to leave society and establish a life outside of it that is really great for who they want to be at the time. But, you know, as the summer starts to end, they start to realize that life can't continue like that. Like they kind of have to return to society and to deal with the kind of ramifications of 
their actions and um you know kind of monica at very early in the film realizes that she's pregnant and but her and lars kind of just decide not to really deal with that and to just kind of have a great summer and to not really think about that and then you know kind of they return to society with these ideas that they're going to kind of establish themselves as a traditional couple and raise the kid and get jobs and kind of figure things out and kind of immediately are reminded by the harsh realities of the economy and society of that small town and all the reasons they hated it and wanted to flee it in the first place. And it's kind of just a really interesting movie about kind of disillusionment and coming of age and, and kind of realizing that, um, you know, to an extent, the oppressive society around you, you just kind of have to adapt to and figure out how to live within it rather than being able to run away from it. Um, Harriet Anderson is absolutely incredible in, in the movie as Monica. And it, it's a very feminist film, like really kind of looking at life from her perspective. And she has a lot of leeway to kind of make decisions for herself rather than doing kind of what society wants her to do. Um, but I, I thought it was a uh, really beautiful film, really enjoyed watching it, but also has some some pretty interesting things to say about society at large and kind of specifically in, in Sweden at the time. Interesting. Uh, summer, with, my summer with Monica or summer, with Monica? summer with Monica, summer with Monica. All right. Um, well, there you have it, everybody. It's a, a round table of recommends, uh, from all different perspectives of, of kind of film. It's, it's interesting <laughs> to get this kind of, uh, uh, this nice mix here. So we've got, yeah, like this my, crazy cult film. This is fun. Go watch it. Or this yeah. shitty kids movie. I guess it's fine. And then like, <laughs> Hey, Ingmar Bergman made a great movie. Check it out. Yeah, yeah exactly. <laughs> Boom. There's, there's fun to be had everywhere, everybody. And reflections upon things. I don't know. It's just a good time. So yeah, we've got uh, uh Vegas in space. If you get a chance to check it out, have a fun night with your friends. Uh, then maybe take the kids, go see Sonic two the take next the day. And then at night, why don't you reflect? on some kind of moodiness and uh, the, the, the time, the zeitgeist of, uh, maybe the zeitgeist of, uh, of Sweden at the time, but uh, Ingmar Bergman's film, um, Summer yeah, with and, and just kind of what it feels like to be 19 and kind of trying to figure your shit out, yeah. you know? Yeah. yeah. So, I mean, there you go. You could have your own theatrical roller coaster in one weekend if you did that um but yeah so that does and it then for us. just blow it all up with tokyo sonata <laughs> yeah that's right <laughs> yes and then everything comes crashing down <laughs> um yeah so there you have it from the underground table uh, uh this this brings the episode to a close i have been your host john garcia with me as always Ryan King, hey, if you want to make some beasts of no nations, you got to make some Sonic the Hedgehog 2s. You get your money somewhere. <laughs> fair enough, fair enough. Uh, <laughs> I don't know that you have to, but... <laughs> and the uh, the battler of the lesser evil uh, over here. Um. <laughs> Michael Dixon, thanks for putting up with our bullshit. Thanks for listening to this week's episode of Knights of the Underground Table. That's night as in the opposite of day, not British douchebags with swords. We've reached that time in the episode where we beg you to interact with us online because we are profoundly lonely people. Follow us on Twitter and Instagram at N-O-T-U-T-Pod. Check out the Knights of the Underground Table Facebook page. Is there a movie you'd like us to review? Email us at knightsoftheundergroundtable at gmail.com. Did you disagree with John's asinine hot takes in this episode? 
Leave us a voicemail on Anchor and tell him just where he can shove his awful opinions. We'll play it on the podcast. Check out the episode description for more details. Subscribe to the podcast on Anchor, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever the hell you podcast. Rate and review us on the platform of your choice, but only if you like what you hear. If you don't like the podcast, rather than leaving a negative review, please kindly go find another podcast. And thanks again for listening.